Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. Hello, and welcome to the CISO's Gambit, the cybersecurity podcast that shares valuable stories from the leading minds in the cybersecurity and technology space. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Today, I'm joined by Marcus Batram, general partner at Telstra Ventures, where he's driving venture investments across technology, including cybersecurity, enterprise applications, cloud applications, infrastructure, next generation networks, IoT, and artificial intelligence. He is our very first guest to join us as a leader in the venture capital space. Marcus, thank you for coming on the show today. Sean, it's great to be here and really nice to meet you and talk to you. Thank you. Now, Marcus, one of the things that we always look at as cybersecurity professionals is keeping our pulse on what's hot in the industry, specifically from an innovation standpoint. As we know, the adversaries are constantly out there finding other ways to damage an organization, extort an organization, or simply humiliate an organization, and sometimes all three. Could you give us a sense how the VC space stays in the mix when it comes to being aware of what might be a good investment, a good business versus something that is more of a flash in the pan, less a product or service, more of a feature? That's a great question, Sean. Let me break it down the context. Um, We're a series A, series B investor. So we're looking at companies and and partnering with entrepreneurs that have kind of thought about a problem and have built like an MVP product and have typically 10 customers and are starting to generate some revenue. So how do we stay on top of what's going on in the market? It's really just hard work um, is the kind of terrible truth of it. We spend, and I spend, uh, leading cyber investments uh, in the fund, spend a lot of time talking to seed investors who are backing those those founders as they kind of cook these ideas up uh, and try and understand the problems that they're solving for. We spend a lot of time talking to CISOs and practitioners in the industry to understand the problems they have. And we spend a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs and trying to parse out, you know, what are, what are the things that they see? And probably the fourth thing, which is maybe a little more cyber specific, um, where we can, we try and talk to folks who, and Israel is a classic example of this, where guys who popped out of the IDF are now building companies, fixing problems for things that they're able to exploit in the, in the IDF. Um, So it really is, if I think about how I divide my time up, I would say at least 60% of my week is in those sorts of conversations. And, you know, from that, we try to parse out and understand a few different things. Because the way I think about it is new threats that evolve are really from two places. And one is how is IT moving? And how does IT infrastructure change? Because that then creates all of these new and interesting ways for cyber criminals to attack an organization. And the other way is you guys figure out 
new ways to break old technology, which is sort of where OT um, security came from as a really, really sort of case in point. So we spent a lot of time talking to CIOs and CTOs who are at the forefront of where the IT infrastructure is moving to as well. And so that's sort of the seeds of everything we start with. And then what we're looking for is trying to parse out, you know, what's the problem this entrepreneur is trying to solve for? And is it really a problem that has scale? Because our job crudely at the end of the day is we partner with these entrepreneurs and we help them to build the biggest company they can possibly build. And ultimately, we then would love to get a successful exit for the entrepreneur. And, you know, we get, we distribute cash back to uh, the folks that give us money to invest. So our job is to find the problems where we think they have the best ability to scale, to build these businesses into big companies. And so cyber is really tough because there's tons and tons of innovation. There's like thousands of companies that get created every year. Um, a lot of them are features of bigger platforms. And a lot of them uh, are solving problems that are really hard to scale. And so we try to figure out in the mix of that, who, you know, where do we invest and who do we partner with? Because we think there's an outsized sort of company that can be built. That I can see in a lot of your portfolio companies. <clears throat> there's one in particular that I'm quite fond of that is focused specifically on the insurance space yeah. in cyber. And uh, this organization is one of a handful that is actually doing something about the problem with underwriting. And what's fascinating to yeah. me is in 2020, 2021, earlier before I came to Zscaler, I was working with an organization that was solving for a lot of the ongoing management challenges associated with the day-to-day -day operations of cybersecurity solutions. And during that time, I had the opportunity to speak to quite a bit about this challenge. And it was eye-opening to me that so many practitioners and specifically CFOs um, were not that aware of how poorly most insurance organizations vet their bets when it comes to where they're underwriting. And one of your portfolio companies is I see as the current leader in driving a lot more accountability and transparency in that process. Uh, and it's one of the things that I think is long overdue, where you're actually being rewarded by having a much more robust, scalable, and functional security program in the form of cost reduction. But yet at the same time, they as a business are protecting themselves because they're doing their own due diligence of every organization that they're underwriting. This is the kind of innovation that makes me excited because if you think about that, how would that even get funded? Somebody would really have to understand. It's like, oh, wait. <laughs> um, so using that one as an example, just because to me it's sure. kind of near and dear, how when you hear a, an idea that goes, hey, we are looking at disrupting the entire market associated with creation of insurance policies across the cybersecurity space. And it's a startup company which may have great leadership with experience, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And they're coming around saying, partner with us. How do you kind of vet that process a little bit? Because that's a pretty tall task, but I know that they're doing well. I'm just fascinated to hear what that would be like. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And what's not to love someone who's going to disrupt an entire industry and <laughs> build a big company? We invested and led the Series B, and you're talking about callless insurance. Um, That's right. And, you know, great, great company, great team in a really big market that's continuing to grow. And so the bones of that investment really started by us investing in what what I call kind of the tooling side of the market, like the companies that are finding threats and finding problems and solving much more sort of tangible security issues. And what we could see in the market was, and the reason we made those investments is we could see a shift in the cyber security industry, which is really the professionalization of the cyber criminal environment. The economic, I would say benefit, but you know there was money to be made exploiting companies and that was accelerating ransomware was accelerating and the tooling that CISOs were using needed to change and improve because threats were getting more sophisticated. And I think like that's not new news, that's you know, decades old now. Um, but we also looked at the cyber security, uh, cyber insurance industry in about 2013 and sort of understood that this was a very archaic process, which involved, you know, we, uh, when we started out as a fund, we were on balance sheet at Telstra, which is an APAC telco. We're now an ind- independent fund, but the CISO of Telstra would spend, you know, a week or more being interviewed by cyber insurance companies and their underwriters, they'd all sit in a room and they'd ask a hundred questions. So that's just like a terrible process. Yeah. (laughs) Really, it's just a terrible process. And so we believed that, you know, this, we could see the companies that had all the data are on the kind of threat side of the problem and the insurance guys had none of the data. And so we, believed that there would be this opportunity where that data could be made available. And so you could kind of change the way insurance was underwritten. And so we actually spoke to all of the different competitors in the market and we used, we have a team inside the fund, which is a data science team that we use to help us stack rank and understand the competitive landscape and score all the companies that we can find. And, you know, Corpus is one of the companies that bubbled to the top of that work. And we then met all of the different sort of competitors in that market. And I think what we came to understand and believe is this isn't a cyber problem. This is an insurance problem. And so the leaders of Corpus were insurance guys. They weren't sort of cyber guys. And we had a certain a similar but different conversation with them because they were doing all the work to understand the threat um, or the potential risk that a policy holder could present. But then they were sort of thinking about it as an insurance problem. And what does that mean for the risk capital provider to call us? And how do you write a, a profitable policy and how do you price in a way that you know works for the distribution channel and works for the customer and works for the company and they build a really interesting platform that helps the underwriting process be much much more efficient and continue to invest in the risk assessment side of that but it held them in good stead because they've sort of thought about this as in the early days about how do i deliver the most efficient process 
And now it's much more mature in terms of how do I deliver that efficient process to the broker and the distribution channel and to the policyholder, but then how do I identify the risk and price that appropriately? And then how do I deliver services and tools around that that actually then help the policyholder downstream? And it's this sort of combination of these things that make it really interesting. The biggest sort of question we had at the start was like, how big could the market be? Because it was outside of the enterprise market, there's very little cyber insurance written into the mid-market or the SMB market. Oh, yeah. One of the risks that we foresaw was maybe that part of the market doesn't really buy cyber insurance. But most CISOs can't price risk in their business. And this gives the CISO to, a way to have an economic conversation inside the company with the CFO. And so that is so true. That's really powerful. That, that, that concept of the difficulties that cybersecurity professionals, CISOs in particular, have without putting a number on yeah. the overarching costs. A lot of it, I think, came from all of us that went through CISSP training many, many moons ago, and you're doing a annual loss expectancy and then realizing that it becomes an exponential number that does not reflect reality whatsoever, yeah. where it's almost... It becomes laughable because you say, oh, if you give me the $10 million that I need of investment for the purposes of up-leveling my network or my infrastructure or my security tools, I'm going to have a $100 million cost avoidance. And it's like, are we actually making money by doing this? And it's like, <laughs> no. It's like, well, then it's not real, right? <laughs> so right. I, I've always found a lot it of those models. For a CFO. That's right. And I think uh, as we see organizations like some of those are in your portfolio where they're much more data-driven, utilizing real-world examples, moving to actuarial models like what we see in traditional, well, it, not only in the sciences and engineering, but also actuarial models that we see within insurance, the de facto standards in some of these orgs is like a Monte Carlo method for measurement. But the problem is, is in cyber, the data is all completely different across all of these different companies. How the heck do you pull this all together and make sense of it? At some point, you transform it and you normalize it so much. It's like, you might as well just make it up. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Challenges with making it up is you, you then sort of run this portfolio and there's, there's still huge demand in the market, um, which is seeing, you know, prices increase and more customers buy the, buy the sort of product, um, which has been great sort of tailwinds for the company. But if you make it up, it sort of works for a little while maybe, but ultimately the measure of success here is how many losses they incur. Like what's the loss rate in the insurance book? And if that's too high, then they stop getting the ability to underwrite their business. And that's a fast way to die. So, yeah, yeah it's, you know, we, I have invested in another insurance company that has a very similar dynamic, not in cyber, but it's the same, the same, same equation. You have to write good profitable policy over a huge portfolio for it to make sense as an insurance product. On a adjacent topic regarding the impact of what investors are perceiving or have already predicted. We're seeing this shift right now with organizations that have suffered catastrophic breaches. Um, mm. We see the situation that's happened with uh, a rideshare organization where the CISO is now yep. looking at prison time. We've seen it with uh, 
software monitoring solutions where the CISO is being personally sued by investors. And what I'm curious about in the VC space, how is this being looked at? Because from the practitioner space, I've spoken with many other friends and peers of Fortune 500 where they've got a large remit and they're taking a pause and saying, hmm, this may not be all it's cracked up to be anymore if I might lose my entire livelihood if, let's say, the IT department doesn't execute on their promises, yeah. which is a very common problem that CISOs deal with, right? Because they don't necessarily have remediation responsibility per se because of segregation of duties. So from the perspective of the investing community, how is this shift where in some cases the CISO is being hung out to dry and in other cases the organization in and of itself is really truly liable and now the investors are coming after them? What impact is this shift having on how you look at investing in the future? That is a great question, John. And I think as an investor, like I think there's a few things going on. And to your point, the way CISOs appear to be responding to this is to make that pause. And so if you're suffering, if you're, if you're in the middle of a, an incident and you need to make a call in how you respond or what do you do, my guess is the first person they're calling is the legal department or their lawyers now to say, okay, I, and, and trying to build coverage. So this is not the CISO decision. This is an organizational decision. And I think at some level that's good in it sort of makes the organization responsible for this because the way I think about what the CISO, they're a service organization to a company. They provide a service, which is a service of cybersecurity. And a lot of the risk that gets created is it's organizational risk. It's not a it's security, but it's just risk. And boards have risk. They talk about risk all day long. And so this is just, in some ways, pushing the decision to the organization so that they're more involved in deciding what happens next, which I think is challenging operationally because then, you know, how do you respond in a reasonable time when you're now having to have a bunch of legal conversations around what happens next or even with the regulators and external agencies? But I don't think you can not do that anymore. And, you know, what happened to the guy Uber and these other things are sort of driving that behavior. From an investment point of view, I don't know. I haven't, to be really candid, I haven't really thought about what that means from an investment point of view. I do think it weakens an organization at some level because all the hesitancy creates more opportunity for a cyber criminal. And, you know, I'd... I don't, I'm, it's probably one of these questions I'd love to come back and answer in three months or six months and just see where this evolves to. Yeah, it'd um, be great to have you back. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a leading, a leading opportunity. But the, um, I do worry that there will be CISOs who will look at this and go, you know what? Life's too short. I can, I've got other things to do. I'm more interested in these other things and I don't need this. And there's no other, I mean, you know, the C, CEO, the C, that maybe some of the other executives in the company, they, you know, this, that, this is a risk that needs to be carried at an organizational level and a decision that needs to be made at an organizational level. It's just how do you operationalize that with any sort of efficiency and speed? That's right. It's uh, the whole subject to me is quite fascinating, having been on all sides, consultant, CISO, yeah. you know, day-to-day -day practitioner, vendor all of the 
tick all the boxes, right? Advisor mm-hmm. to startups that I look at it and I go, okay, well, where does the buck actually stop? Because yeah. I'll never forget when I was CISO of a financial institution here in the state of California, we had a remit from the government of the state of California to address a long-standing open cybersecurity issue that was there for many years prior to me coming on board. And quickly it became my number one priority because the regulators were giving us a lot, a lot of tough talk, I guess is probably the best way of saying it. And it had the attention of everyone and the board. But as we peeled back the layers, what we found is that uh, there had been multiple attempts from my predecessor to get funding. And every time he approached the discussion, it was not a priority, not a priority. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, well, let's say that this negative outcome occurs, but now the CISO, he or she has actually been ringing the bell internally. What recourse do they have? Do they then blow the whistle on them and say, you're not doing the right thing? Well, that's a career ender. Or do you wait for the whole thing to come out? And then during in discovery, just wait for them to point the finger at the leadership, which is not a great bet. So it just feels like uh, there's all of this unknown risk that's out there because we're, and it's not that it's new for cybersecurity, but this has definitely happened in like uh, the medical field, specifically in like medical devices. Uh, We've seen this in the sciences as well, where it's like, hey, let's not go to market with this product because it's killing people. And they go, nah, we'll be fine. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in hot water. Now, granted, not all cybersecurity outcomes lead to loss of life, thank goodness, but some of them do. Yeah. Leads to loss of money, loss of brand, loss of market market cap. That's right. Huge. There's big sort of reputational and financial implications of this. So it's a good, mate, it's a great question. This is just going to take time to parse out. For and sure. I, I do, you know, my fear is that it's going to have to go through a bunch of legal drama and court cases to land at something sensible, but hopefully operationally, you know, companies kind of figure this out and recognize that these are issues that need to be raised and escalated and solved and the stuff that gets tucked away in the drawer and never funded and never sold for, no one wants that out into discovery because that's... yeah. You've already suffered a loss. Now you're just proving an operational problem. That's just challenging everywhere. I listened to the interview that you did earlier this year with Michael Santonas, who's the CTO over at CrowdStrike. And CrowdStrike is a key Zscaler partner. And in that discussion, you were having a macro discussion and also getting down into some of the minutia regarding the cybersecurity market. And a statement that was made was that it's seen as one of the spaces where there's new technology or new creative approaches being levied to try to solve for the problem, hence this massive explosion we see in startups. What I'm curious about is what is your take, if you just kind of look down a couple of years or heck, even a year, because you know things can change very, very quickly, especially with all of the M&A activity, yeah. where do you see some of this going, whether it's on the innovation side or even the business model side, as you're looking at it from the perspective of where am I going to maximize the returns for the firm? How do you see it potentially rolling out? And I know 
a lot of this is uh, tea leaves and crystal balling sometimes, but obviously there's a ton of research and a ton of effort that goes into the due diligence process before you write a check for tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So not to sound like I'm minimizing it, but you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're hoping that everything stays within the, the confines of whatever the formulation was to determine that this would be a good investment. I think there's a few things that are true that kind of give us a framework to work within. One is cyber crime is crime and criminals make money out of it. So there's a huge economic incentive and that's not changing. The geopolitical landscape is more tense and more problematic than it has been for a long time. And it shifts around. But you know, that cybersecurity at a government level is a a defensive and an offensive opportunity. And we sort of are entering a phase where there's an economic downturn. And so that's going to impact people, going to impact their job. And so I think there's more incentive to go and do the things that are wrong. So I think there's sort of this backdrop to this, which is not great from a cybersecurity point of view. Um, the thing that's probably different to a decade ago is that you know, we have seen the rise of some big platforms. You know, Microsoft spent a lot of money, invested a lot in their cybersecurity sort of tooling and posture and what they sell. Google is doing similar, Scalar, CrowdStrike, Okta, you know, what Toma is doing, kind of putting all these identity companies together. And all of the M&A in the market is creating sort of big security platforms. But at the end of it, there's still lots of innovation that needs to occur because all of those platforms and all those companies have limitations and IT is continuing to evolve as it goes from cloud to containers to serverless. And companies are continuing to drive this, and I think they're going to continue to drive this story around digitization and modernization of their applications and the infrastructure. And I think the entire world is going to end up in a hybrid situation in some way, shape or form. So the backdrop in my head is like this ripe opportunity for cyber problems, increasing sort of complexity in the customer environment and these platforms that are going to continue to look for ways to address all of the gaps that keep coming up. And so, you know, that's a pretty interesting and, and probably sorry, the other thing I should say is this idea around um, zero trust and identity and where all that is headed and companies sort of trying to adopt that as a as a way forward. But as an investor, you kind of look at all that and think, well, still tremendous tailwinds from an investment point of view. And there's still tons of tech in the market in cybersecurity that's really old and doesn't really, you know, support an organization the way it probably needs to. Every CISO I talk to, I'm the guy who brings the new shiny toy and they look at me and go like, I've got all these other toys. What am I going to do with this new one? But equally, they know the world's shifting around them and the tech shifts around them. And they need to stay on top of that. And so the question sort of goes back to the first question you asked is, which of these things are creating a big enough problem at a market level that it can support the creation of a company that we can invest into? Yeah, and look, and give you a really a specific example. So we invested in a company called Strata in the identity space, which is trying to help organizations solve a lot of complexity around identity and layer in security into old applications and solve you know identity stacks that are now end of life that are still prolific in organizations and they've never been able to get off of them. So you look at that and you think this applies to every Fortune 2000 company at some level and a whole lot below that. 
That's a great so, market. It's like, how do you execute to take advantage of it? And you know, at today, there's software supply chain is a big topic. And there's you know, a dozen companies actually helping organizations understand the software bomb of all the open source sort of software or Java software, whatever it is they're using. The, the trick is, how do you get the developer community to do anything on the back of it? And we have some great companies that are building up around attack surface management in cloud. And identifying that. But I think there's another way behind that, which is the companies that are going to start detecting kind of like EDR for cloud is like a, isn't. So I think there's always this, as long as IT keeps evolving and bad guys have economic motivation to find problems, this is sort of a terrible innovation cycle that just creates opportunity for smart entrepreneurs to build things. And I, we haven't even touched what might happen in blockchain because that's just like, that's like another universe of infrastructure that has lots of security challenges and identity challenges. Pick a topic. Yeah, the blockchain piece is interesting because there's so much hype around it. I follow a lot of content creators across the space and the amount of fraud that's being reported by, you know, whether it's influencers or other folks around blockchain, specifically NFTs or, you yeah. know, coins that are not stable, I believe is giving a negative connotation to blockchain-based technologies, which is really unfair because yep. criminals are going to criminal. That's what they do. Yep. Uh, and it's very unfortunate, I think, uh, when you start fraud, seeing all of so, yeah. that's, that's just how they roll, right? It's what they do. Yep. <laughs> you know, your comment about the identity challenge in and of itself uh, has always been a fascinating concept to me because identity as a problem to me, along with data classification, I, I half jokingly and very tongue in cheek say it's literally the ERM project of cybersecurity <laughs> where you end up spending 50, 60, 100 million dollars to get, you know, the consultants, the software, the professional services all in. And seven years later, you're still deploying and it never ends. And by the time that that happens, something else has come up and now you're migrating and doing it all over again. So uh, that's exciting to hear that uh, you're all focusing on that too as part of your investment strategies. Totally. Isn't that now, like a great opportunity for investment in a company that can solve that problem? That would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I know that's part of the reason that drove some of our recent innovations around data classification because yeah. it is a very real problem that yeah. Uh, CISOs, compliance personnel, privacy personnel deal with on the daily. So, you know, they're key partners like CrowdStrike uh, that are also looking at solving other aspects of some of those challenges. Yeah. Now, yeah. one question that gets asked to me all the time, you know, I was fortunate to work with a amazing startup who had a very successful exit to a large cybersecurity firm. And it was fascinating to me how, even though I have advised others, but in a consulting capacity, how now I was finding myself directly engaging and helping them with go-to-market strategy, other aspect, aspects of, okay, how does this relate to the perspective of the CISO or the perspective of the development team that is going to consume this product? What I've observed is that there are a lot of highly capable, qualified cybersecurity professionals, specifically at the leadership executive level, that are interested in engaging with VCs. And there's a lot of them out there that, uh, you know, will create kind of like a advisory group uh, or even potentially 
becoming an external advisor uh, to one of these startups. Um, yeah. Would you have any recommendations for some of our audience that are uh, heavily considering this, but don't really know how to start? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, and so if, maybe I'll flip it around and say, okay, or even kind of dovetail it to what an early stage company for different things at different stages, but ultimately very, very early on in a company's life, the most valuable um, insights they're looking for is, am I really solving a customer problem? And the CISO community and the security professionals in the market, they're the kind of holder of the keys to the car to the answer to that question, which is, is this a problem that has some resonance with what I have with my organization? And so the folks I've sort of worked with that are very good at this um, actually dedicate time, and that's a precious commodity but dedicate some time to talking to VCs and talking to early stage companies around things that they either believe need to be fixed or things that they're trying to get fixed in their organization. And you, you need to kind of take the time. You can't, don't say yes to the first invitation you get. Go and talk to a bunch of these companies and figure out who you have an affinity with. Figure out someone that you want to spend some time with, be it a VC or a early stage company um, and then on the other side of it if, if you you find someone that you like you want to work with you're prepared to spend some time with um, then you actually have to do that as well you have to actually take take the time and provide the input and help kind of guide this company um, to to whatever whatever it needs to be um, and there's a difference as you go from an advisor to a board member it's very different different set of problems, different experience. And so the you kind of, if you don't sort of take a step, you never get there. So you got to kind of be prepared to commit some time to go and have these conversations and start that journey. Um, the, 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 the trick of it on the other side of it is um, you don't want to be, all of a sudden there's things consuming, you know, 15 hours a week of your time. Um, in, in supporting these organizations. So you need to kind of set boundaries early, like in all these sort of relationships and say, okay, we, we can do ABC. And maybe ABC is we'll run a POC for you. We'll do a design, we'll be a design partner. We'll have, we'll commit a small amount of resource to figuring out if you actually solve the problem. And really, I mean, some organizations I know will run these sort of programs and run these um, startups for, in their organization for six months or a year. And at the end of the year, they make a call and say, yay or nay, do we keep going or do we cut it off? Um, uh, you know, So it, it can be really sophisticated at one level or it can be very um, sort of ad hoc at the other. Um, I don't think there's a real playbook at all around this. I think it's very organic in terms of what you do and how you commit and what the company is looking for. Um, but to a certain extent, people who are doing the advisory work are doing what I'm doing and trying to figure out who do they like and who can they work with and how much time can they commit outside of their day job um, to, to really provide the support that these guys are looking for. Yeah, that's great insight. Really, one of the things that I think is helpful in, in some of your commentary there is the need to lead, lean in, right? Yep. If you're going to be part of the team, you're part of the team. Yep. Otherwise, don't bother because... Don't do it. These organizations, you know, they've got serious stress, 
usually very small teams and they're trying to work magic with the, the resources that they have. Exactly. Now, final question for you. I'm super curious about uh, the great success that you have led over at Telstra Ventures. You've had so many great outcomes there in terms of the organizations that you've picked and believed in uh, to invest in. Without telling us your secret sauce, feel free to feel feel free to tell me. Feel free to tell me later on if you like. Uh, but without revealing your secret sauce, what is it that you look for when you're assessing an organization and deciding? Yes, I think this is the one because I've seen large investments in organizations that they have almost no customers, no revenue, and the perception as a lay person outside of the VC space is like, okay, how did that happen? Like sometimes it's maybe because the invest, the investors know the founders or the founders had a successful exit before that I can understand a lot more, but I've yep. seen some organizations. It's like, Oh, they got 200 million in funding. It's like, okay, great. What's the revenue? They're like half a million. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. So I'm curious, like what are the, the levers that you can share that you look for, that you go, oh, okay, there's something really good here for us. Uh, what do you look for? Wow, that's a, it's actually the layers in that question are are endless. We should we should chat about this again, but at, at a really high level. So, um, if you're, I mean, we're not a firm that's going to invest two hundred million in a half a million dollar revenue company. Um, so we would you like me that, to introduce you to a few that will <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke sure. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of an interesting uh i mean it's a massive bet that someone like that is making on the t on the founder team and the market that that company is chasing and they're basically saying we're going to give you enough money that you don't have to raise money for x number of years so they're really thinking about the company as like a, let's say, a Series C company or a Series D company, and the founders not distracted, and they just literally try and build this thing for the next three to five years. Um, the way we we think about it a bit differently, because um, you know we're we're investing much smaller checks than that. But what we're really looking for kind of goes back to my first um, point, which is is this a real problem? And is this a problem that we can go talk to, you know, CISOs and customers and IT guys about and they understand it and say, yeah. And then is it a, is it a mark? How big is the market that sits around it? Is this like super niche? It only works in this particular segment because of this particular problem. And government is one of the examples of that. Is this just a government company? And that's a really hard company to invest in. Sometimes it's fine, and there's a big, occasionally a big company produced there. But we're much, we have a much sort of broader perspective for that. And can we help? Can we help the founder? Are there things that we can offer that will be attractive to them outside of money? Do we want to work with them? Because you know we make investments and partner with these guys and girls, and it's a you know seven to ten year commitment and. To, you know, which is a long time and you're doing weekly, monthly, quarterly calls with them. So it's a, and when things are going well and things are going badly, there's a lot of time commitment to it. 
And do we think this is the right team to execute on the problem, the product they got? So it's a little bit generic because I think lots of venture capitalists would have a similar sort of answer to that. But I think if I had to kind of stack rank the way we think about it, market, problem, team, and everything else. And probably the final part of the puzzle, which has is changed a lot in the last six months, is the valuation. <laughs> at the end of the day, we need to invest our money and believe that the company is worth X. And then in best guess, five years down the track, it's worth Y. Does that make sense? And why do we think it's Y versus some other number? Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing some of the valuations of some of these companies. I mean, they're looking at 7X to 20X and I go, what? <laughs> and I'm not a finance person whatsoever. And nor do I pretend to be one, not even on a podcast or TV. <laughs> and I just kind of, I just scratch my head going, okay, how does that work? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you never know, but most of the time you, uh, you get, you end up having to believe such a um, monumental outcome that it's hard to, hard to, hard to justify. And we, and looking inside the firm, inside of the fund, we have a, a, a pretty disciplined process, which we've had in place for more than a decade now, where we have sort of sector specialists and they all bring some, a different conversation to the table when we're talking about investment. So you kind of need to defend your investment and work with the partnership and we don't have it's not a unanimous voting system it's just a majority but they raise questions that you need to and they raise really good questions because they come at it with a different point of view so we, we're pretty we think we're and i think we are pretty disciplined when it comes to price and we're disciplined when it comes to answering all the questions and the diligence that we do um and so that just we've been really fortunate and really privileged to work with some with all the folks we have because it's a it's a huge commitment and like we say we like to to partner with the extraordinary um so you know that's what we're looking for well marcus thank you again for joining us on the show today and i wish you continued success with all of your organizations in which you've partnered up with and is part of your overall portfolio i really enjoyed the conversation and I could probably spend uh, months with you and still have more questions, but I greatly, <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate and enjoyed our time today. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Marcus Batram from Telstra Ventures. Thanks again. Thanks, Sean. Great to chat to you. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2022.